All right. So this is episode one of my podcast, The Main Objective, um, the podcast where I talk about the industry from the consumer's perspective and how it affects everybody um, and just kind of where we've been, where we're going, that kind of stuff. So this episode, perception is everything. Um, sometimes perception is everything and with gaming, there's no exceptions. Microtransactions have become a household name. We live with them so we can enjoy them and enjoy the games that we play at lower costs and sometimes play them for free. Or do we? Um, I want to dive into the discussion of microtransactions and just kind of provide my thoughts on the subject and why they can be a good or a bad thing. All right, so microtransactions. We all know what they are. Skins, map packs, um, cosmetics, right? Anything from a full-on story expansion to loot boxes. You know, they're, they're microtransactions. That's what they are. There's micro and sometimes even macro. And I think a big expansion is what we would call, you know, a, a macro transaction. So I'm going to kind of go through what we've seen in the past, where things started and how they how they've gone um, throughout the years in the industry. So let's first talk about expansion packs. These are the grandfather of all microtransactions. Um, <clears throat> the only difference with those, I, I, I feel, and again, this is all subjective. These are all my opinions. These are all things that I myself feel you may feel or have a different opinion on that matter. But for like-minded folks, this is, this is kind of my perspective of, of the industry. So expansion packs, um, they were the grandfather of, uh, of microtransactions. But they had a meaning, they had a purpose. Um, great example is Call of Duty 1. They had an expansion pack, um, I forgot the name of it. But it was an extension of the story, and it's built on everything that the original made. Um, it added new maps, it added new it added, added playable vehicles. Um, believe it or not, Call of Duty 1 had drivable vehicles in the expansion pack, and it was great. They were completely unbalanced, but man, were they great. So, <clears throat> these came out throughout, you know, the 90s, um, early 2000s, you know, we all know them, we all love them. Some of the greatest game content were uh, were expansions. They gave more gameplay, essentially. And they provided more story to the already existing game, essentially, is what I'm getting at here. So that's 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 kind of where they all started, I feel. Microtransactions. Um, and then from there, they slowly morphed into things like map packs, um, adding different weapons to games. Again, harken back to Call of Duty. It's, it's just a great example. Call of Duty 2 had a map pack that was sponsored by NVIDIA, or it might, may have been one, one or two. So they were able to release that for free, free of charge. Nobody ever really talked about it. I think a lot of those deals were kind of done under the table so that, you know, 
publishers and developers can get, you know, a good reputation of releasing good content. But in the end, the, 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 the reality of the situation was they were sponsored, sponsored content packs. So, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. The only problem is they've kind of morphed into other things and we'll get into that here in a minute. And then from there, I think we got into the cosmetic age. So, you know, expansions drove the market to map packs and extensions of, you know, basic gameplay. But it never really changed the game. It never really changed it from being this one thing to a completely different thing. So, map packs really were just an extension of and and expansions in general during that time were just an extension of the game they were never anything that changed the way the game played or how the game looked or worked then we got into the cosmetic age and when i say co the cosmetic age well I think we all know where that started and how it started. We can really trace a lot of that back back to the classic horse armor from Oblivion. Because before that, you know, we had there were skins, there were guns, there were things that we could download and, and, and install. At least on PC, a lot of those things were mods. They they were skin mods. They were different things you could download from like I don't remember what it was called. I think it was like File Planet or something. Not File Planet, but um, I know specifically Soldier of Fortune 2 on PC skins you could just go out and download because the game engine supported adding in your own skins and playing your character like that. Now, obviously, when you join a game, you know, the other players don't really see who you are uh, or what your skin looks like unless they download it. But you know what? To you... It was special to you. It was cool just to have your own look and feel. Same thing with uh, the Star Wars Jedi Academy games. It was the same thing. We played these and installed these mods to customize how we looked and how we played. And not necessarily how we played so much as how we felt when we were playing. And I think the big publishers really caught on with that. They saw websites like File Planet and, you know, Gamers Nexus and that kind of stuff. Not Gamers Nexus, but, you know, the ne the Nexus, whatever it, whatever it's called these days. And they said, you know what? We can make some money off of that. And not to be a cynic of that or anything, but it's, it just, it's just kind of how that worked out. And I don't blame them. There was a huge market for that. And that market kept going and going and going, and they built it out to a point of complete insanity, and they made money off of it. Tons of money. If I were running a publishing company like that, I would, I would do the same thing. I'll just admit, I would do the same thing. It was a gold mine. They mined it, and man, they found gold, that's for sure. So, with Bethesda kicking off the whole horse armor nonsense, the old saying comes in, right? It's just cosmetics. And that just stuck. That stuck. And I think the thing that really helped that to stick and not to kind of single out any platform or anything, but it's a fact that the consoles helped that stick. Xbox 360, PS3, consoles didn't have mods. 
They didn't have anything like that to just download a skin, install it in the file structure of the game, and then you have your own character. You can walk around with Macho Man Randy Savage carrying giant boxes of Slim Jims everywhere, but that was the point. You could change the game to you to what you wanted. And now we have this system where we're changing the game to what the company says we can change it to. And I really think that's what drove the hatred towards that towards that horse armor. It was a sanctioned mod that only Bethesda had access to. And that's what they told us we could use. Now, obviously, that didn't stop mods. Oblivion kept getting the crap modded out of it, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But it was the fact that they had the audacity to say, we own this game, and we own everything, all the content for it, even if it's community-made. And, you know, some people will say, you know, it's their game, it's their IP, they own it. Yeah, sure. But they threw the, the mod tools out there for people to make mods. They gave the community the tools to make the content for them. They didn't give the tools to the community so that they could steal that content and then resell it for what they wanted. So, where did that lead us? It's just cosmetics. And you know, the consoles really did drive that home. For better or for worse, they drove it home... Because there was no way for them to install these mods in any shape or form. Their file systems are locked down. They are proprietary. They still are locked down. Bethesda has now has their own mod store, the creation store, whatever it's called. I don't even I don't even know what it's called. I don't even use it. I think it's absolute absolutely ridiculous. But <laughs> they did it. They found a way to sell mods. And Valve, even. Valve, of all companies, tried to sell mods as well. We all know that what happened there. Valve tried to monetize mods. Which just goes to show how big and massive a market they, they saw. If even Valve wants to get a cut of that money, you've got something on your hands that no publisher can, can get, their, can get their, their paws on. And Valve knew it. Valve was the, like, the poster child of, of mods. I mean, they, they would purchase mods and resell them. Counter-Strike, Team Fortress, they have always wanted to monetize mods. They've always tried to find a way to monetize mods. And that's, there's nothing wrong with that. The creators should get paid for, for their content. But the creators of those mods should get paid for those content, for that content. Because they put the time and effort to make it. Not Valve. Not Bethesda. And for that matter, I love Valve. Valve is probably one of my favorite companies. Um, I dual boot Windows and Linux at home. So, you know, I love everything that they've done with Steam Play. It has been simply a godsend for, for the Linux community, no matter which way you look at it. If you look at it from the wine perspective or the native perspective, it doesn't really matter. They've done amazing, amazing things for Linux. But that's a that's a topic for another episode we'll get into eventually. So where did where did cosmetics lead us? Where did cosmetics drive the market? Well, I think it's a combination. I think it was a combination of free-to-play games coming out and a combination of new ways to monetize 
the stuff they've already monetized in a way that that makes sense. You know, th- these publishers are businesses. They have to make money. Nothing is made for free. What better way to make money and continue to make money than randomizing the stuff that you get? And I think you all know where I'm going with this. Loot boxes. We started out with expansion packs, extensions of the story and the gameplay, and in some situations, the multiplayer. It morphed into horse armor and skins. Well, really it morphed into skins to customize who you were online. Then it morphed into horse armor. And then from horse armor, morphed into skin shops, skin DLC. And from skin DLC, it morphed into loot boxes. And from there, we have the loot boxes. We have things like FIFA Ultimate Team now. We have Overwatch loot boxes. We have everything's a loot box. Everything's random random number generators now. Everything is, for better or for worse, a casino. And really, the horrible part about it is those casinos, they're not targeted towards adults. They're simply targeted towards children. And, you know, the age-old question comes in comes into play here. Is it ethical or is it not? Or is it not? And really, it seems like that's a matter of perspective. I personally feel that if you're going to sell a loot box, if you're going to sell essentially gambling mechanics, because there are multiple countries in the world that have agreed loot boxes, random chance items in online games are a form of gambling. And it really is. You know, it's a slot machine. You're pulling that lever every time you swipe your card. That, I think, is the, the biggest problem with gaming today is the blatant disregard of ethical microtransactions. You know, I, I think there is a good number of people out there who don't really mind paying $10 for a skin. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think the problem comes in when you add that random number generator, that that dice roll, if you will, to get the product that you want. And I think that's the major distinction here. And loot boxes, they've driven that they've driven that market home. They they've proven that 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 business strategy works. Whether it be ethical or not, it works. It simply works. There's no arguing it. People pay money for these things. People pay money for skins. They pay money for 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 a chance to get something that they might want. It's all that slot machine mentality. It is a slippery slope. It is a touchy subject. But I think in the end, what, what it comes down to is this content was intended to be used as a form of payment for all of the stuff that I talked about before. Map packs, skin packs, everything. It was a form of subsidizing the content that we used to get for free from sponsorships. And that's fine. And I think that's a great way to go about it. The only problem is um, (laughs) it kind of morphed into something else. It stopped being about 
giving players more content and it became more giving publishers an avenue for cheap profits. Now I say cheap profits. I I will say, I don't know how much time and effort goes into creating a skin. I don't know how much money it costs to purchase the, the software to build these. Oh my goodness. To build these skins. Um, you know, Maya and Photoshop are, are not cheap. Autodesk software. I, I work in IT. I know for a fact Autodesk software is not cheap. So it's just that I, I think the problem lies in... We used to get these things for free regardless. We used to be able to mod our games. We used to be able to add the things we want without having to pay for them. And then publishers took that mentality and built a business around it. And again, I don't think there's a problem with that because it's a business, right? And it's their product. They can do what they want. They've done the risk, the risk assessments. They've done the risk analysis. They know how, you know, they, they know the impact it's going to cause and they've deemed the impact isn't good enough or big enough to risk losing out on massive profits. Loot boxes have been both a good good thing and a bad thing. And I think it depends on, on, on which company and what that company does to determine if what they're doing is ethical. Now, the FIFA Ultimate Team, I personally do not think that is ethical. Especially when you used to have products that would um, allow you to create your teams. You used to be able to create these teams on the fly without, you know, worrying about paying for anything. I remember spending so much time in NCAA football 2004, making my own college and building out my own roster. That was so fun. Um, It's the only football game I ever liked, to be honest. Don't really like Madden. I don't play Madden because of the loot boxes. I think I have a very addictive personality. And it scares me about what, you know, what, what kind of behaviors it's going to, it's going to drive into my brain. I've worked hard to, to break a lot of those addictive behaviors. I don't want this to go on to be a rant on loot boxes because there are some good things with loot boxes too. I think Overwatch does a really good job of loot boxes. Um, they give, they give work to the artists who after the game is done, what do they do? They move on to the next project. It gives them something to do in the time between between products, between the planning stages of, of these products to earn their keep and earn earn a little bit more money on the side without worrying about their contracts expiring or worrying about the corporate machine taking them out of business. Um, so yeah, so the artists, you know, they need it. They need work too. You know, they a lot of them probably move on to other projects after their first one's done and that's that's that and sometimes i and i'm just kind of guessing here uh those sometimes those artists could be contractors working in another country or working as freelance and outsource and being outsourced to these big corporations um and they need work in between their in between their products as well 
So, you know, maybe it's a matter of giving them a job while you wait for the next the next big game to come out. That could be that could be the case. We don't know because well, I don't know because I'm not, I'm not a game artist. I'm not a concept artist or anything for 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 a game developer. I am simply like I state in my intro, I am simply a gamer. That's what I do. I play the games and I talk about them. I love talking about the games. That's all I do. I'm not I'm not an artist. But loot boxes themselves, I think have been abused in modern times in modern game development and I think random number number generators have been uh, abused in modern content to the point of being unethical in some situations. Uh, I think Bungie and Destiny, uh, Destiny 2, do a very unfortunate job about, um, you know, their microtransactions. They can't seem to figure out if they want to do the loot box route with the Engrams or if they want to do the uh, standard buy a skin route with uh, the, you know, the, the store with uh, the silver was her name Tess or something Claudia Black uh, voices her I think but you know it's a matter of deciding how you want to go about those microtransactions where do we want to go how do we want to get there um, well unfortunately again I'm not a game developer I am a gamer um, I just play them and whether or not a developer listens to me and listens to this podcast you know that's it's probably up for debate but I say, I say, if you're de- if you're a developer, or if you're an artist for a video game company, and you're developing a game, if you're developing a game for a big corporation. The best thing that you can do is make sure that no matter what kind of monetization practice you you follow, whether it be a, a skin shop, loot boxes, map packs, or standard expansions. Make sure that whatever you do, you show the gamers, you show the people playing your game that you have pride in the product that you made. Because we see that. We all see that. We can tell when something was made in 10 minutes in Photoshop. We can tell when something was a reskin or designed from previous concept art and thrown together real quick to sell for three bucks. We can tell. There's no hiding it. Blizzard is one of the biggest uh, offenders of this, in my opinion. Um, especially with the new expansion, expansion, Shadowlands. The whole idea of covenants and you know needing to re-roll that with time-gated content. It just shows that you you're not as prideful of your product. You don't stand by your product as much. If you utilize things like time gates just to get people to log in and play your game. Now, you may not be intending people to have that have that perspective. But as the title of this episode goes, perception is everything. You have your career and your lives to really build around. You have that future that you want that you want to have in this industry. But if you don't make a product that you don't stand by, or if you make a product that you simply design content and design gameplay that forces you to log back in and enjoy it, 
I don't think you're really designing gameplay that you feel is enjoyable for you to play or in, or you're proud to present to people. Because if you were proud to present that content to people, you would be shouting it from the rooftops. You would be saying, look, this content is so good. We didn't put a limit on how much that you can do. We didn't put a limit on how much you can earn or how many skins you can get from this or how many, how much in-game currency you can get from it. We didn't put any kind of limit on your enjoyment of our product because we are so proud of what we made. We want you to continue to play it. That in itself is so important from a consumer perspective. And I think as consumers, we really need to be holding a lot of that behavior accountable because we are consumers. We're purchasing our hard, we're using our hard earned cash to purchase the product that these people made. And if all they're doing is creating this manipulative, unethical system of logging in and getting what you want and then saying come back in a couple of days to do it again just to drive up your your um, metrics you're not really making a game that you're proud of it works that kind of stuff works in free-to-play games I, I would think but when you're talking about a game like say World of Warcraft or Starcraft 2 or Diablo 3 or even Path of Exile man Path of Exile does a great job at giving you content without gating you path of exile does a great job of of giving a lot of content to you from the start and i think grinding gear games has done an excellent job of that um, especially for a free-to-play game like path of exile it's a great example of how the industry can move forward in a positive light now again you know grinding gear games and path of exile um, and i'm not going to get into the politics of the situation here um, I don't think it's necessarily relevant you know politics wise but from a business perspective they are owned by Tencent and I feel like Tencent does purchase game companies and developers that do specialize in kind of repeatable loot box driven economies so while they you know they may have their own agenda to push in terms of game philosophies. I don't really care. Um, I know a lot of people feel strongly about that topic. And maybe we'll get into that in another episode. The perceptions of a publisher or something. I don't know. If you're interested, yeah, we might we might go over that sometime. But I, I think they've done an excellent job of giving content to the players in a respectful manner, to, to the consumer in a respectful manner that... It doesn't hinder the game or your, or your proper enjoyment of the game. So there are ways to, to do it properly. So where, do, where does that leave us? Where does that take us in the industry? Well, I think all roads have kind of led to this point. They've all kind of converged at this semi-gambling, semi-casino-style method of subsidization and the you know the the free-to-play mmos are the biggest culprit in my opinion um you know you have free to free to play uh or real money currency 
or premium currencies, I guess is what they call them. Guild Wars 2 does a really good job of, um, with their Lion store, their Black Lion Exchange, I think is what it's called. Um, you can exchange in-game currency for premium currency and then buy skins with that. Now, it may take like a million years to, you know, farm out that in-game currency to get enough to buy a skin with the premium currency. I don't know. I haven't really done a whole lot into it. Maybe uh, you guys, if I post this on YouTube, maybe you guys can comment on it. Um, they've done a really good job of working with microtransactions in a way that's respectful to the player, to the consumer. And really, it's all about respect, right? Respect the people playing your game. Respect the people paying for your content. And they'll keep coming back for more. Have pride in what you make. And make sure that what you're making respects the people playing the game. And I think that's so forgotten these days. That it's just profits, profits, profits. Um, and I get why. Games are expensive. They're expensive to design. And a lot of that, I feel, stems to the need to for every publisher to have their own proprietary game engine. And again, we'll get into that in another episode as well. I have another one planned on game engines and, and where they went and where they are today. A lot of that, I feel, was driven home by the need for proprietary game engines from... Uh, AAA publishers, uh, mainly because the costs of developing those game engines need to be recouped, and it, the easiest way to recoup those costs has been historically microtransactions or loot boxes or skins. So it is the easy way out, essentially. And we can we'll get into that more in another episode, like I said. But that's just kind of a, I guess, a preview for the future. With all of, with all of this. You know, th this is kind of just my opinion. Again, you might have a different different opinion on where the industry will go uh, and how it'll pan out. Um, but here's kind of my take. I feel that loot boxes are too big of an industry to not sell. They are a massive market that publishers will fight tooth and nail to continue using and selling because it's little effort for maximized profit. It sucks, but that's what it is. And that's how it's going to stay until loot boxes are no longer profitable. I think as we go along, there's going to be more and more go uh, governments um, around the world that realize what loot boxes really truly are and that is a digital slot machine because that's what it is you're dropping your money into this box into a slot machine you're pulling the lever clicking a button and based off of the random chance of that button click or or lever pull you are getting a product you are getting something or you could be getting nothing in the case of a slot machine, but that's not that's not necessarily an excuse, and that seems to be a, a very popular excuse by these by these publishers. Well, you're getting something in at least something in return for your money. I mean, yeah, I mean it's it's the same excuse that Magic has had for 
and and every trading card game has had for for decades but like it's still an element of gambling that is being sold to children and a lot of that you know i would agree has to do with the parenting of that child you know letting them know what is a bad consumer decision um because children don't know and they won't know that's just a fact and it's up to us as parents um i i have children myself it's up to us to to show them the ethical practices and good consumer decisions of the market because they are not going to understand they simply aren't and you know there's there's also that argument of well you can't always just say for the kids you're right we can't we can't always say it's you know we're trying to protect the kids but for crying out loud man like have some self-respect have a little self-respect and just accept the fact that sometimes there there are bad consumer decisions by publishers and vote with your wallet we we all have to have that have that self-respect in our in our hearts and it's not a matter of helping the publishers pay for more content or fund that content. It's a matter of what is a good consumer decision. And I think we've all forgotten that. In conclusion, where's the market going to go? It depends on the government. It depends on regulations, really. Because if there's if nothing happens, which frankly i i believe won't there won't be anything that that meaningful that happens nothing meaningful is going to come out of 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 a of a governmental regulation i mean at least not in a video game if if something good comes out of that great uh if nothing meaningful comes out of that it's there's still going to be loot boxes there won't be any changes we're going to continue to get loot boxes. We're going to continue to get manipulative um, microtransactions because they work. They work. Time gating content works. Loot boxes work. Um, cash shops work. Premium currencies, they all work. They drive us to want something that we don't have. And, that, and that's human nature. Nobody is at fault for that except ourselves we just have to understand what those people are trying to sell us because not all microtransactions are bad i really don't think all microtransactions are bad because sometimes it is about funding that that developer and funding that um that content that's how we got map packs that's how we got uh you know new guns in call of duty that's how some developers stay afloat. I am fairly certain that that's how Bungie has been able to stay afloat all these years with uh, Destiny 2, but, uh, you know, I don't really know the inner workings of that. I think we all need to be a little more cognizant and responsible with our spending these days. Because the more content is slapped in a loot box and that strategy works the more they're going to keep doing it and the more they're going to keep making money it is essentially the biggest 
profit margin that they could probably make. Again, I don't have the numbers. I don't, I can't really, it's all speculation, but <laughs> I mean, let's face it. If it didn't work, they wouldn't do it, right? I think there are still good developers out there. And I think there are still good publishers. There are people out there that want to truly make a good game and take pride in their product. Um, I don't think that has ever gone away. I just think we see the bad things more than the good. And I think we need to understand that. There are good developers and there are good publishers. We just see the negative sides more than we see the good. And that's really because that negative voice is louder than the positive voice. And that's really kind of my stance on microtransactions and where they're going to go. Um, I think we're just going to see a continuation of what we already have. And we're going to see probably more and more innovation in that area. Um, things like AI-driven uh, text packs, that kind of stuff. I don't know. I saw something on Reddit a while a while back where somebody developed an AI, uh, like some kind of algorithm to pull words from from the dictionary and create like sentences and, and stuff for NPCs. Thought that was really cool, but um, kind of scary at the same time. But either way, I have come to the end of my first episode of the main objective. Uh, I think I've gotten I've gotten my point across pretty well. Thanks for listening. I hope you've enjoyed listening. Um, I hope you've enjoyed my thoughts on, on on the state of the industry and kind of my perspective on where it's going to go. You know, keep tuning in. I've got plenty more episodes planned. I've got several episodes on um, game development in general from the consumer perspective. Uh, I really want to talk about how game engines have evolved to be more independent, indie dev friendly and that kind of stuff. So, you know, check back and uh, hope you keep listening. Unfortunately, life can get in the way. I do this for fun. Eventually, if it kicks off and gets popular, I would love to do it for a living, but gotta wait until that happens, right? Only you guys can decide. So, thanks for listening. Take care, and go play some games. <laughs>